Welcome to A Little Bit Radical, a business podcast from Standing on Giants. I'm Rob, your host. Join me as I meet people and organisations who are doing things differently, challenging the status quo and yes, might just be a little bit radical. Today I'm meeting a leader who has instigated perhaps the longest list of little bit radical changes that a business I've seen yet. Donald Moore is chair of One and All, a company that makes excellent school uniforms. But when you start looking at the type of business One and All is, you start to see some exciting things. It's 100% employee owned. They're a certified B Corp. They're a real living wage employer and in fact have an executive pay cap. They're certified carbon neutral. They even combat period poverty by providing free sanitary products to the women who make their garments in Bangladesh. The list goes on and on. It's very inspiring stuff. But it wasn't always like this. Oh no. So let's hear more about this brilliant business and how they got here. Donald, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And it's brilliant to be here on such an inspirational podcast. I've listened to them all. They're fantastic. That's very kind of you to say, Donald, your check's in the post. Uh, that's if anyone uses checks anymore. <laughs> so, Donald, if you are a little bit radical and you're on this podcast, so we know you are, and we've seen the list of things that your business does as well, so we know you are, what do you think in your early life set you up for that? Well, I've done two radical things, I think, so maybe I'm hoping that that qualifies. So, all the way through secondary school, which was a long time ago, there was never a point where I thought I would own a car there was never a part in my wildest dreams where I would own a house and there was never a point where I thought that anyone would even think I was remotely intelligent all the way through school I don't know if that's some sort of background for you that's very unimpressive I think that's really interesting so let me ask you about that a little bit more so it doesn't sound like you expected much from life certainly in those couple of examples and it doesn't sound like you had many people who expected much from you was is that fair to say yeah well the teachers thought i was pretty thick and i probably agreed with them so i think that's right but actually i think not being very bright is something that i'm quite proud of really because i think it's helped me so much because obviously I didn't go to business school, so I didn't learn all the rubbish that people are taught. And when you're not very bright, you don't get that knowledge, but you have to keep things simple. Keeping to one or two things is really helpful. And I think that allows me to understand and communicate better with my colleagues because half of them are in traditionally lower paid jobs like warehouse and shop floor two-thirds of us are less than 35 grand a year so we probably mirror the uk population so it's probably helpful to think about colleagues and the workers in our supply chain around the world when you're not articulate and you come from a position of like zero wealth as well so i'm probably quite similar to or I was quite similar to most of them. So I wear those things as a badge, really. I like that. So I think it obviously gives you a great humility, great empathy for your employees because you are them, it sounds like. That's how you feel, you know, you've been there. But I think I'd, I would challenge on your behalf the notion of you 
not being very bright. We look at education, we look at success through a very, very narrow lens. And I think what's probably most exciting about the kind of business that you're leading and have been a part of, now in those same business schools where they learn all the rubbish, they're going to be learning how to do what you're doing. What at all? Have you ever thought about that? Well, I think they could maybe take some lessons. I'm taken by things like donor economics, which I sort of understand, and I wouldn't understand economics. And I don't really get the badge that is GDP either. I think that's done so much damage. I think they'll have to change those educational institutions. Absolutely. And I think we see the top business schools around the world now launching courses in things like sustainability leadership, where they are going to be talking about the things that you've been doing at One All for years. So we're going to get more into that in, in just a while. But first, while we're still on you, as you've got older, do you feel that you've become less or more radical? And what's been behind that? I think more radical, really. And I think as I approached work, I went through a period of how long could I last when I got fired? Because I always figured that I was pretty unemployable anyway. So I got to like a week and then a month. And when I got to three months, maybe I felt a bit more freedom. I would always challenge anyway, but maybe I was more radical the, the more freedom I had. And to me, freedom was being able to get fired and still last for three months in providing for my family. That's really interesting. So if I'd interpret that, it's a bit like what safety net was there there for you if you would never compromise on your values. So you would always challenge what you thought was wrong. But if there was a good safety net there, you looked at it as an inevitability that you were going to get fired at some point. Yeah. Is that fair? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So I've got probably a good example that involves being radical and where you would normally get fired. Oh, yes. Yeah, tell us about that. So I've been with this business since uh, 1999 and, and we sort of, as a leader, but not as a shareholder, it was a mess to start with, which is why they called me in because I could only actually get a job where somebody was desperate, really, you know, <laughs> on the verge of, like, bankruptcy. They're the only people that would employ me, I think. So (laughs) we started to do okay, but then we had a crisis. I think it was like 2009 after the financial crash and all those problems in our our industry. The price of cotton went up threefold in a few weeks. It was bad luck. Even though we were fairly profitable, we'd almost run out of cash. Worried about paying the wage bill, it is a difficult time, really. So the owner of the company said to me, we need to get ruthless, we need to get nasty, we need to fire people, we need to cut the wage bill. And I don't really blame him for that because I think most owners of a SME would think like that. I don't know if that's what you're taught in business school or not, but it seems to be like, you know, the people that I've come across, that seems to be a normal sort of reaction. I said, well, Actually, what we're going to do, we're going to put people and customers first before profit and shareholders are going to come last. And that's the way forward. There's no more massive expense accounts, no more fixed dividends. You'll only get something if there's um, retained profits at the end. All that is stopped. So that's the way forward. Normally, that would get you fired. Absolutely. And maybe the thought they didn't have any choice. So that's what we did. So it wasn't a debate. 
he just said what he thought and I told him what we were doing. That worked, actually. I know it's, you know, not that surprising, is it? It seems now like it was some sort of case study. What would you do with? At the time, customer satisfaction was like 43% and that rose. Colleague satisfaction was 34% and that rose. Profits went up fivefold, you know, over the next four five or five fold. years. Yeah, yeah. Cash generation was up like massively. So I think that's the power of treating people well, especially the lower paid and the impact that has on uh, productivity, even though we don't measure it, but especially on customer satisfaction. If you've got customers, if everyone is trying to give them the best possible service, the fastest and the easiest and the friendliest, then you'll do well. But you can't achieve that if you're paying, low paying, treating people poorly. And even now, you, you can tell, can't you, if you've been served by somebody that's paid below the real living wage, because their thought is, if my boss could pay me lower than the would, my self-esteem is pretty low, why should I care about customer? Why should you go the extra mile? You can just tell. And for that difference in pay, the rewards are terrific. That's the first time I think that people would think that's pretty radical to tell the boss to get lost and not only to get lost but you're not getting what you have been getting for years and it was a large amount of money as well i think that qualifies as being radical oh i would say so i would say so definitely i don't think there's many people listening who could imagine you know saying that to the owner of their company this is what we're going to do and you're sort of going to accept it <laughs> yeah so at the time, the family had had that business for, well, since 1935. So we started to do well, you know, from 2010 onwards. And then we thought about risk, which we think about a lot. And we considered our biggest risk to the business was that it could be sold. So using uh, multiples, the company was valued at millions and the shareholders pretty much didn't care about the employees. There was lots of interest from people wanting to acquire, but mainly from businesses that would acquire it and then move it, you know, elsewhere in the country. Of course. So most people would have been out of a job. And this is radical, I think. And it's the only case I know. So we approached the shareholders for us to buy the business. That's not so radical. Lots of people do an MBO and make millions from it. So, but what we did, we did that to become empl majority employee owned, no shareholders for the good of everyone, no fat cats, that's the way forward. And there's a thin line, I think, between being radical and being stupid. Even now, people tell me that I'm stupid because I could have made millions because the company is worth now millions more than we paid for it but by we it was the company that actually did the deal it was the company that provided the finance just like the b-core community there's like over a thousand in the uk there's a thousand over a thousand employee-owned owned businesses in the uk i've not heard of any where the deal has been done by the employees 
for the good of employees. Hey, really? So I think that that's radical, but partly stupid. Well, I think some of our listeners and myself might respectfully challenge the <laughs> that you're stupid, but because it, it sounds like the first example you made a choice aligned with your values and your values as you've already discussed are not aligned with accumulating the most wealth for yourself but in looking after people it sounds like and so that was the only choice that you were going to to make do you feel if you had done a management buyout and you were sat on your yacht now do you think you'd sleep well at night oh yeah it'd be great wouldn't it (laughs) fantastic <laughs> we never discussed an MBO, even though companies in that sector would have been more than willing to support me because people had already suggested so. But I didn't really take that seriously. I suppose the other strange thing is when we did that deal, which was brilliant and very affordable, and we paid that money back within like four years, even though legally we had, I think, eight years to pay for it. I said to the leadership team at the side at the time, we need to fulfill our potential. We're employer now. We really need to fulfill our potential. And what that means is that all of us will be replaced by really talented people, people that can really take this business on, much more talented than us lot. We've got it this far, but we're not equipped to take it on. And they all said, oh, yeah, great really so to sort of say thanks for getting us to where we are but that won't take us forward maybe that's a little bit radical because they weren't being paid off or had lots of share options you know when when we bought the company or or anything so i think that was just a sign that we wanted legacy and we wanted to see the business go from strength to strength and knowing our limitations we knew that other people could take it on. Again, the humility, yeah, your values to focus on. Yeah, really think long-term, I suppose, what's coming out there for me and thinking about what's for the greater good, what's going to make the impact with more people than just you personally. So that's a fantastic summary of how One and All became employee-owned. There's quite a few listeners, I think, who would be very intrigued by that concept and how it works. How does employee ownership really work you know on a kind of day-to-day and yearly basis how it works really is that when you become employed it's for the good of everyone but that doesn't mean that that all colleagues and there's about 70 of us that doesn't mean that we all vote on anything that we ever do we all trust each other to do the best job possible so we trust the leadership team to make the right decisions to take us forward We trust the people in the warehouse to do the best job for the customer in a timely way. We're all trusted to do our jobs. Obviously, everyone's informed and everyone gets information that might usually just be kept to the like leadership team or the management. Everyone knows sales and profit figures and cash and customer satisfaction, you know, all the metrics. So I think it's a great way to run a business, but it's not a cooperative and it's not soft and you make difficult decisions so it's not really any different but you see these through a different lens and and whatever we do has to be for the good of everyone for all colleagues for our suppliers for the workers in our supply chain our customers 
people in our community, whatever we do, it has to do good. I see. So that's a really great summary that you've given there and it, highlighting how it is different to a cooperative and not a full democracy. And in the UK, the coalition actually did something good to everyone's surprise, probably. The one good thing that they did was to help employee ownership grow in the UK. One of the advantages is that you can pay profit share, providing it's fair, tax-free, up to £3,500 per colleague per year. Brilliant. Which is roughly the amount that we paid this year to all colleagues. That's the lowest amount that we paid. But for somebody who's on traditionally lower pay, even the real living wage, to get that money, mainly in December, tax-free, is brilliant. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons why our colleagues are not struggling through the cost of living crisis. And it being tax-free is really helpful. And there are incentives for the people selling the business to get their money out tax-free and even for shareholders who are not employees they get big benefits as well so there's tax-free so they get big advances as well so i think that's led to the increase in employee-owned companies but for us it means that we can never be sold because it's in our constitution that our lawyers said we couldn't do that. So what we wrote in was that if it was ever sold, 99% of the proceeds would go to the dog's home. <laughs> a good failsafe. Yeah. A good yeah. <laughs> failsafe clause. Yeah. <laughs> Very creative solution. I think you've summarized the benefits really well there. And like you say, to someone on a lower wage, £3,500 at Christmas, that must be 10% plus of their wage, right? And that must make an absolutely huge difference. That's absolutely worth bearing in mind, obviously a huge benefit. Are there any downsides to employee ownership? If you're a wannabe fat cat, then don't get involved, really. Don't work for a company that's employee-owned if you want to max out your reward package. Because in our business, the lower paid get more and the higher paid get less. So pay differential is really important and should be important with all businesses, I think. So there's a big advantage for the lower paid, less so for the higher paid. But having said that, the talent that we attract for higher paid jobs, paying less were like a magnet for talent, really. And I think that's because of the purpose, really, that they're proud that they work with a company that looks after the poorest in our communities better, not just our colleagues, but people in the world as well. Absolutely. I don't think that can be underestimated, actually, when you can offer getting up out of bed every morning with a spring in your step because you know you're making a positive difference in the world. It's hard to write on a job description or put into a payslip, isn't it? But it's a real thing. Yeah. So you've mentioned the fat cats, Donald, which I'm glad you brought it up. When we met to first talk about this podcast, you warned me not to invite you because you might say something too controversial. And the fat cats and executive pay was one of the topics that you felt you were very vocal on. But I encouraged you and said, no, that's exactly what we want. So you've mentioned the pay differential at one and all. So tell us about that. But then also talk to us about your campaigning in that area and what you think needs to change around pay full stop, both at executive level and the lowest paid. Well, I think reward 
generally is important. So I looked at the full reward package for the higher paid. Uh, the shareholders were getting things like private healthcare. So we scrapped that. We looked at what we could replace it with. So one of the things that we replaced it with was death in service, four times salary. So that's something that's usually given to leadership, to people in higher paid jobs who don't really need it. And the people who need it, the lower paid, wouldn't ever get it. We had a colleague actually that found out that she didn't have long to live. She was about 61, the breadwinner in her family. She knew that she was going to get four times salary. That was a massive relief to her. She had her wake while she was alive and everyone came along and it was all good and everything. But if an average funeral costs, say, like 3000 if you just talk about funeral costs, three or four grand, maybe, that's not affordable to most workers in the country. Which brings me on to the fact, so maybe about 10 years ago, well, I read that half the country would struggle with an unexpected bill of £500. So can you imagine what that is now? It's like... 60% of the country of and it's like a hundred pounds. So years and years ago, we started to provide interest-free loans to all colleague crisis loans. Typically I thought, you know, maybe up to 500 pounds for the reasons why people would go to a paid day lender, really, you know, like your car's broke down, your fridge is broke, you've got a boiler problem, all those sort of things, unexpected. When you're low paid, you you haven't got the resource to be able to handle that sort of thing. So we started doing that. That was successful. But the biggest success was that we'd talk to people and find out why they needed it and what they could afford to pay back. So we ran like money management programs with them. People were really grateful for that because it's the sort of thing that should be taught at school. And some of our people, not unique to us, is that they just had never learned how to budget that was really useful but then we extended it a bit so uh, we had somebody with severe gambling debt so we got them through it and obviously the discipline of seeing their statements then and in the future uh, looking out for all the telltale signs about you know are you taking cash out and you know to hide it all that sort of stuff we had credit card debt how best to consolidate providing loans for that so I think that's been really helpful and I think that prepared everyone for the cost of living crisis because when, when we started to talk about it, everyone was really open to share their financial things, things that you wouldn't normally tell your boss, really. There's a stigma, isn't there, around, you know, being skint, not having enough cash, what if, what if you can't afford to pay, you know, a particular bill or anything. But that's the reality that, that most people have. So I think that really helped a lot. And when we did a survey a few months ago at the start of the crisis, maybe I think it was like June where we started to feel worried about what was coming. We did the survey and asked people, you know, were they getting enough help? What help would they need? How worried were they? That sort of thing. We asked how many people had prepaid meters. And there was a couple of those, but... Imagine how many millions of people are living, paying more on a prepaid meter and struggling without power when that cash card runs out. Generally, people's, we helped people with signposting for, for like benefits. 
because I think there's about £15 billion a year in unclaimed benefits. So signposting is really good to help people. I think the sort of things that we're doing helped people to prepare for this crisis. And I'm quite pleased, actually, that everyone here seems to be navigating the crisis, you know, quite smoothly. Obviously helped by the profit share figures that I talked about, but also felt able to help other people in our communities, the less fortunate with, you know, food banks, especially cultural food banks, because... I don't think people realise that uh, there's such a need for non-so-called British food stuff going into food banks. You know, some communities wouldn't really know what to do with the tin of beans and a loaf of bread. You know, there's so I think that's been helpful as well. So much in there, Donald. Thank you for sharing all those stories. Sorry to hear about your colleague, but very inspiring to hear how that initiative supported her sounds like you take on an awful lot more responsibility for your employees than the average employer well maybe we don't see ourselves as an employer really because we're all in it well that's a good point we're all in it together so i think that mindset might be different and maybe i'm different as well because i don't see myself as being any different to anyone else especially the lower paid and the less privileged i campaign a lot on this and I speak a lot about poverty and cost of living crisis and things. One of the things that disappoints me about uh, Bico in the UK, I was on a call where people were invited to talk about the cost of living crisis so they could produce some collateral. So what I learned from that is that B-Lab didn't really understand the real cost of living crisis and poverty. Most of the companies invited didn't understand because of privilege. In fact, we're quoted in the report, but one of the companies quoted in the report wasn't a Bico. When I think about it, if somebody said to me, do you want to join this club? It's privileged. It's white middle class. It's trading companies sell at high prices out of the reach of the normal you know, person in the street. Do you want to join that club? I'd have said, get lost. It sounds like the IOD you know to me and uh, i don't really want to know in our be local event that we've got coming up soon actually our topic is poverty i think we're going to invite the big issue who are a brilliant b core fantastic i don't think enough people realize that they're a b core but they've been long-standing b core they do such brilliant work one of the highest scores i believe i think the highest scoring b core in the whole community maybe even the whole world are the big issue i believe i think it was i think they've been overtaken in the uk now oh have they okay. but it was scoring 130 plus i think so yeah i think there's more work to do one of the things that i say is that if you speak to your average bico that can tell you the advantages of like planting a tree but if you talk to them about the realities of going to a food bank they wouldn't have a clue and how can you if you're privileged? You can't really, unless you've got like lived experience or, or you've actually done some work and seen the impact that that has, then you can't really. I'm sort of trying in my little way to bring people more into the B Corp community. We're proud of being a B Corp, but it can be so much better. And obviously, I've been involved slightly in some of the talks about the new standards. 
And I think that's really positive, generally. I think it's ridiculous that you could be a current B Corp and not pay the real living wage to colleagues or contractors. I think that's shocking, actually. So I think that levelling up, if that's a phrase I can use without... Reclaim it. Something else to reclaim. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's a really good point. So for our listeners, this is B Corp looking at their standards and the B Corp assessments at the moment. And at the moment, it's you fill out a survey and you get a certain number of points for areas of positive impact. And as you've said, Donald, you could be doing, in theory, not very much at all in one section, but a lot in another and still qualify. Whereas now they are looking at instigating a kind of a minimum set of agreed standards across all areas that B Corps would have to achieve. And so things like you're describing would not be the case anymore. I think there's probably a lot of people listening to this podcast, and I count myself, I'd say, humbly amongst them who don't really know the hard reality of poverty, you know, who always is open to listening. I'd love for you to spend a bit of time telling us about that then. So what did you say to those other businesses that you met who didn't know about the realities of poverty help us understand this is from like october when i was doing a talk on poverty so in greater manchester one in four children were in poverty there's examples of children who have working parents taking an empty lunchbox to school and pretending to eat being denied like school food by you know the dinner ladies for example one in four is such a lot and things are getting worse with the cost of living crisis so that figure could be you know one in three and i think that yeah if you can picture an average school in the amount of children that are in poverty in just sheer numbers in each school that tells you how bad things are you can only imagine can't you how difficult that is they haven't got the heating on for probably the last two or three days of the week because the meters run out they've got no cash to put in they're struggling on food parents are sort of giving most of the food to the children it's just really difficult i mean luckily lots of people do help in our communities the third sector do brilliant work actually superb the good thing is that the privileged don't have to worry about it, don't really have to think about it, don't have to acknowledge it. They can just put a few cans in the, you know, the storage area in the supermarket and feel good about it, really. I was talking to somebody who works for a low-cost supermarket where the average spend might be 20 quid, for example. They suffered and suffered from shoplifting. And the two most popular products for shoplifting those luxury items were number one baby food and the second uh, most popular was uh, period products and one of the reasons why that statistic isn't better known is that some of the staff in the store are turning a blind eye because they can't bear the responsibility of turning somebody in because they're desperate and they need some baby food you know you can only imagine can't you if you can't feed your baby you know so when i talk to people about that 
they start to imagine what it's like and most people are decent are they they want to do something positive about it so i think that is making a difference i speak to employees and say please pay the real living wage but also have an understanding of the challenges that the lower paid are having are they having to go to the food bank are they on a prepaid meter how much of a struggle is it how is it impacting their health and mental health what can you do to help there are some low or no cost solutions like signposting interest-free loans don't really cost that much money most organizations can pay that i think that's some of the campaigning that i do just to raise the awareness and for people to know more really because they're not typical business conversations of course it's very inspiring donald yeah i'm even feeling a bit emotional listening to you speak as a dad whose little boy is approaching two and remembering how stressed you are anyway raising a little baby and then that added sickening stress of not being able to feed them the kind of numbers that you're talking about are quite terrifying especially in a developed rich country like we are it just shouldn't be happening so thank you for raising our awareness about that and about presenting some solutions for the kind of businesses that you know we talk to all the time i think that's very useful and i think you're tapping into if, if what b corp is about and about being a purpose-led business is about or an employee-owned business it's about accepting that your business and work doesn't exist in a tiny narrow economic silo it exists in a community it exists in a wider set of collaborations and interplays and people within it we shouldn't just see you know pay as like a, just a pure transactional relationship we have with people providing a, an asset to us you know there's that horrible term human resources isn't it and how that department should not be called human resources like that they're coal to be burnt or something like that you know it should be about people hr we hate that term actually oh that's interesting yeah. yeah that's just one of the things that are banned because people are not resources to be used they're not machines that you, that you use and then discard when you finish with them they're just not so i hate the term hr but i hate the term staff as well because i felt like a member of staff and you just feel like subservient really you just feel like whatever you're doing is for the benefit of a few others and it's a horrible term, I think. It's okay if you're in, like, the armed forces or, like, local government. Maybe that's what you do. But in business, it shouldn't be. You should be co-workers or colleagues or, like, John Lewis partners, you know. Donald, we're coming to the end of our time together today, sadly, because it's been a fantastic conversation. I'm sure you've given our listeners so much food for thought and inspiration and insight. But... At the end, we always like to step back from the day-to-day -day and think about the world at large and perhaps something that you don't have direct involvement with. As it happens, you do have a lot of direct involvement with uh, issues at, at large that affect the wider world. But what's a little bit radical change that you would like to see in the world at large? Well, it's probably impossible, isn't it? But all the problems in the world, climate crisis and poverty, are caused by greed. So the more we can do to reduce greed from the very wealthiest, 
but from lots of us really. We don't need to buy so much stuff, do we? We shouldn't be judged on the car that we drive or the house that we've got. You know, we, we just shouldn't. We're just too greedy. We've just wasted too much stuff. We've just been led down this path of growth and bigger is better and anything. So I think if we could do something about that, but I've got no idea what, because the wealthiest are not going to give up their wealth easily. And they pretty much control everything, don't they? But to reduce pay differential is really important to call out corporate greed. Some of the CEO salaries are disgraceful, I think. Just get higher and higher where business performance probably hasn't improved. I think just to reduce greed would be an amazing thing, really. But as always, I've got no answers. That's okay. This is the Little Bit Radical podcast and the final section you don't have to have the solution for, so that's okay. And I think we can all get behind reducing greed, especially at that level. Sounds like if uh, every business was employee-owned, that might go some of the way to reducing greed and implementing the kind of values that you have at one and all. Donald, we're at the end of our conversation now. Thank you so much. As we sign off, we always do with the same question. If there's someone out there listening who has a little bit of a radical idea for their life, for their business, whatever it might be, what advice would you give that person to get it off the ground? I think just try to have plenty of allies, just people to talk to, whoever they are across different communities. It's easier if you've got an ally that sometimes I haven't had one, but I think generally just lots of different allies across different spheres, really, different people to talk to across all walks of life. I think that's quite helpful. Brilliant. Donald, thank you so much and hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please follow us on your podcast platform. If you'd like to appear on A Little Bit Radical or have an idea of someone we should speak to, please email podcast at standingongiants.com or get in touch with me on LinkedIn. You can search Rob Fawkes or search Standing on Giants and you'll find me there. Thank you very much and speak to you next time. Mm -hmm.